Greetings, you've got Nature's Edge on the air. This is Dale. We, we've got a kind of interesting show today. We're going to talk to a, a friend of mine who I've known for a number of years, Dr. Barbara R. Duncan. Barbara is a Ph.D. in folklore and folk life from the University of Pennsylvania. She works as the education director at the Museum of the Cherokee over in Cherokee, North Carolina. And uh, she writes grants, she does research, she does a lot of stuff. And uh, she works very closely with the community on, on cultural uh, uh, revitalization projects. And she has written a number of books, uh, uh, including Laving Stories of the Cherokee, uh, with six storytellers from the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. And that book won the uh, Thomas Wolfe uh, Literary Award uh, and World Storytelling Award, which are pretty impressive. She also wrote Cherokee Heritage, Trails Guidebook with co-author Brent Riggs, which received a, a uh, Preserve American Presidential Award and the Willie B. Parker Peace Prize. And other books have included Origins of the Milky Way, Cherokee Creation Stories in Art and Culture, Crisis and Conflict. Her current work in progress is Cherokee Clothing in the 1700s. The North American Folklore Society has presented her with the Brown Hudson Award and just a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm not going to go into here. We'll, we'll talk to Barbara a little more about that in a moment. But uh, Barbara, first, welcome to Nature's Edge. Thanks, Dale. I'm glad to be here. I know that there are a, a bunch of projects coming up this summer at the museum, and we want to talk about quite a few of them. But I know one that's actually coming up, I think, uh, around June 13th, uh, that's kind of near and dear to your heart, is the uh, the Voices Festival, the Cherokee Voices Festival. Tell me about it. Well, the Cherokee Voices Festival, Saturday, June 13th. This is free. It's open to the public. And it is a great day to come out and meet Cherokee people, talk to some of the elders who don't travel very much anymore. But they will be there. Um, we've got more than 25 craft demonstrators. We have a whole day of traditional dancing, storytelling, gospel music in Cherokee language, traditional food at noon. And it's just it's a really fun day. I, you know, I get asked quite a bit, Barbara, about, especially when people meet elders, if if they should give a gift or something. Talk about, is that something that, uh, I mean, I kind of understand it, but I, I get asked that question all the time. Um, you, people don't have to give the elders a gift in order to speak with them. Most of these people, like you've met Jerry Wolf at the museum. Oh, absolutely. Or Amanda Swimmer, who's a world-recognized potter. And they're in their 90s, but they are so gracious. They are so happy to talk to people. I mean, of course, every, everybody loves to get a gift. I'm sure they'd love to have a gift. But people don't need to feel obligated to do that. You can just come out and talk to them. They'll have some of their work for sale as well, uh, as well as the other artists. So... I think the main thing, and this is kind of what the gift shows, isn't it, is the idea of respect. Yes. And if you approach the elders and approach Cherokee people with respect and interest, they will respond to that. And I, and I can attest to that. Many of you know, uh, before I did the uh, Water Trail of Tears, I got to know quite a few of the elders. Uh, uh, really thanks to Barbara. She introduced me to, to uh, any number of them, and she mentioned one of them, uh, Jerry Wolf, and uh, Jerry won a rather prestigious award uh, 
what, a year ago or so, Barbara? Yes, the North Carolina Folk Heritage Award that recognizes uh, people who are really important to the communities in preserving and passing on traditions. And Jerry is amazing. Like I say, he's 90. Um, He tells stories that his grandfather told him about being in the Civil War. And some people think oral tradition is kind of like that parlor game where you whisper something to somebody and they whisper it to the next person and then it gets garbled and it's funny. But, But oral tradition is not always like that. I mean, Jerry's grandfather told him about being in the Civil War with the Thomas Legion over at Knoxville. And then Jerry can tell you about that. And that's yeah. just two tellings of these really important stories. And so Jerry also uh, is very knowledgeable about the stickball game. And he carves the ball sticks that are used in the game. And he's kind of like the sports announcer for all the traditional stickball games of the Eastern Band. You can hear him at the fall fair. Um, he coached the women when they wanted to bring back stickball in the year 2000. So he speaks Cherokee language, he sings Cherokee hymns, he tells stories. He's just really incredible. And he's at the museum uh, a lot of mornings, isn't he? Monday, yeah. Wednesday, and Friday. You can find him um, find him at the museum from 9 to 11.30, and then he goes to lunch promptly, 11.30 to 12.30. He does that. Because he goes up to Solly Manor, and this is just one of the ways in which the Cherokee community is different from other communities that I've lived in. At 11.30 in Cherokee, the cool place to be is Solly Manor. It is. Because that's where all the old people eat lunch. And everybody likes to go there. So yeah. it's not like nursing homes where people are like, you know, kind of put away and nobody likes to go there. This is the cool place to be in Cherokee. It really is. Can can people just drop in there? It happens. I know it does. But <laughs> it, I mean, I've been there many times, but I, I, I was either invited or I just sort of showed up because, you know, I know a lot of them now. So. It's good to be invited. You know how pushy we white people are. We, we don't make a good impression sometimes. I, I know. I know. that, And, and uh, that is one of the things, uh, listeners, that I had to get over when I first started doing my research was getting them to understand that uh, I wasn't just another white person over there trying to take advantage. And I think I succeeded on Barbara. I think you have, Dale, very much so. Yeah. Barbara, let's talk a little bit. You talk about traditional Cherokee culture. Uh, it's one of the things that will be on display uh, during the Voices Festival. What is that traditional Cherokee culture? Can you do that in a sentence or two? <laughs> I will try. I will try. Um, traditional Cherokee culture, to me, culture is everything that's passed down from generation to generation. So it is really the wisdom of how you live in the world, how you act as a person. And the Cherokee culture is distinctly different from other cultures. And it's really, it's amazing that here we are, we're sitting in Asheville, and just 50 miles from here, here is this whole other culture where people have lived in these mountains, in the southern Appalachians, for 5, 10, 15, maybe 50,000 years. And all of that time, they have survived as a people. They've had to figure out how to use the resources here, and they have figured out how to use the resources without using them up and passing that information and what I call Cherokee science on from generation to generation. And that's, you know, really it's a day, so it's a snapshot. The festival is a snapshot of these really long-standing traditions. It is. And I will tell people, I mean, I've been to the Voices Festival numerous times, and we'll uh, we'll be there this year, uh, the good Lord willing. And, and uh, it is a great time to meet and talk and, and get to know the Cherokee and also to visit the museum. I mean, I think the uh, I think Barbara, you guys do an amazing job with the museum and and walking people through the history and some of the culture. Well, thanks, Dale. I appreciate that. Uh, we have two exhibits that people can see. 
Uh, I think the admission price now is $11 from ad- for adults, and we've got some discounts. But we have one big exhibit that we did uh, with the Disney Imagineers, which is the whole story of the Cherokee people over 11,000 years. And that's kind of a broad sweep of, of, uh, of the history and culture. It has special effects and CGI movies, and, uh, as well as our, some things from our incredible collection of artifacts, life-size figures uh, cast from Cherokee people. That's our main exhibit. Our second exhibit that people can see is the Emissaries of Peace. And instead of this broad sweep of 11,000 years, Emissaries of Peace is one year in Cherokee history, 1762, based on the memoirs of Henry Timberlake. He was a Virginian, and in the British Army, he came to conclude a peace treaty with the Cherokees, ended up living with the Cherokees for three months, uh, left behind a child uh, with Ostinaco's daughter, took Ostinaco and two other Cherokees to England to visit King George III. And they actually had a diplomatic mission to the king. So the exhibit is based on Timberlake's memoirs, but it's, um, it shows all the artifacts that actually came from, were excavated from the places where he visited, as well as newspapers from England. Uh, it's an exciting story because when the Cherokees got to England and met with King George III, they were... Um, they were celebrities, and so they were covered in the newspapers, lots of visual things about them. So th- that one exhibit tells that story, and we have an exciting new exhibit with a new artifact opening on that day as well, the Bat Creek Stone, very mysterious artifact. It is, and, and uh, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you just a little more about that when we come back. You are listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart. We are going to take a short break, and we'll return. Welcome back. This is Dale, and we are having a great discussion uh, today with uh, Dr. Barbara Duncan. Barbara is the Education uh, Director at the Museum of the Cherokee in Cherokee, North Carolina. And uh, we were just started our discussion talking about the Voices Festival, which is coming up on on uh, June 13th. And, and Barbara, is there a, a website, I know there is, that people can go to... Uh, to kind of find out what's going on at the museum? Uh, www.cherokeemuseum, all one word, dot O-R-G. And that kind of lists what's happening at the museum and, and everything else. It will. It will have information and the schedule on the festival coming up in the next couple of days. And uh, also we have a Facebook page, Museum of the Cherokee Indian. People can look at that. We're going to start featuring some of the artists and performers who will be at the festival. All right. That. You were talking right before we went to break. You mentioned this stone and this new exhibit. I happen to know about it, Barbara, but just give a brief sort of overview of, of what that is. The Bat Creek Stone is a little stone with a big story. It is about four inches long and an inch and a half high. It's made out of red, uh, red hematite. It's got an inscription on it. And this is the thing that is very, very rare in archaeology to find artifacts with inscriptions. This uh, came out of a mound over in East Tennessee where the Back Creek runs into the Little Tennessee River. 
and it was excavated 1889 when Cyrus Thomas was looking at who built these mounds. People thought there was maybe this strange race of mound builders, and you do see this on TV sometimes still, but uh, Thomas proved really conclusively at that time, more than 100 years ago, people who built these giant mounds throughout the southeast were the ancestors of today's tribe, so the ancestors of the Cherokees and the Creeks and the Choctaws. Is that the Mississippian culture? or? Yeah, Mississippian really refers to a time period, time period yes. and a technology. And then the technology during that time, which a lot of different tribes in the southeast shared, was like growing intensive corn crops, beans, squash, doing this beautiful artwork, carving three on sisters. shells. Yeah, the three sisters, yeah. exactly. So, um, so, So coming out of that time period maybe, or maybe a little earlier, some of the things with it that were carbon dated, dated to about 1,500 years ago. And um, so originally the writing was thought to be Cherokee. And then, you know, archaeology wasn't really a science back then. Right. They didn't have dating. Um, so, of course, we know Cherokee writing was invented in 1821. So that's one of the mysteries. In the 1970s, people started looking at this stone and thinking maybe it was ancient Hebrew writing. Mm. So this brings up the theory of the lost tribes of Israel, which... Cherokee people don't think they're part of the Lost Tribes. I'll just tell you that right yeah, now. Yeah, no, they do not. And and most scholars agree that that's a whole other story. It was kind of an effort on the part of Europeans to bring Native people into their narrative about religion and the history of the world, how to fit them into the Bible story. Uh, but that's been pretty well disproved. The other idea about the stone is that maybe it was a hoax. And there are, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about that. Oh, absolutely. So this is why it's a little stone with a big story. And we have it on display, on loan from the Smithsonian, uh, with some of, some of this information with it. And I uh, hope that the grand opening will be Saturday at the Voices Festival. I can't wait to see it. I've, I've heard about it uh, quite a bit. And I, and I may have actually seen it at the Smithsonian, but I'm not so sure. I know uh, also you've got a new program at the museum, uh, the Cherokee Friends Program. Uh, Tell us a little about that, Barbara. Oh, we are really excited about this. And this is funded by the Cherokee Preservation Foundation. We have six uh, members of the Eastern Band who we have hired and trained as cultural specialists. And their job is to interact with the public at the museum, downtown, on the horseshoe stage near the Welcome Center, and just around town. So they're going to be at the Voices Festival as well. They have a, a tremendous knowledge now of Cherokee history and culture, factual information. They have learned to do things like throw the atlatl yes, and play the chunky game, which people... Cherokee people really haven't done much in the last couple hundred years, but they are really into this. And one of them just threw the atlatl. His personal best record was 112 yards. Who did that? Last Bear Will Noty. Ah. Uh, you might know, right? I do know. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I know, I know most of those guys. Yeah. yeah. So this is a really, and, and they're dressed in the 18th century clothing of the Cherokees, which is very beautiful and, and elaborate and comfortable. So the men are in breech clouts and leggings, and uh, Dakota are are representing Cherokee women, uh, has some really beautiful outfits that uh, that we've made for her. She does, and, and they, are, they are so approachable. I mean, I know this, this, these uh, uh, men and women, and, and they're approachable. In fact, they love talking to people about their culture. They love answering questions, and, uh, 
and and they're they're pretty straightforward with their answers. Oh, they're really good, and they're they're well informed. They love to talk to the public, and we're, it's free to talk to them. We're just doing this to enhance the experience of our visitors at the museum and around Cherokee. Now, people can also book them for a longer program with a group. We have something that we call the Cherokee Experience. We've had groups, everything from kindergartners to Fulbright scholars to elder hostel to wilderness adventures, and you can come to the museum and book a program, or you can have a, a one-hour dance program, actually learn to dance and do dances, um, do hands-on crafts, eat Cherokee food. It's kind of like a mini festival that you can plan for your group. Yeah, it, it really, and again, they can do that through the through the Cherokee Museum website? Through the, through the museum and through our box office manager. So both, both any either one of those uh, venues will, will get them in there. Um, I was trying to think of... Uh, of another question I had about that, and I just went brain dead, but that's all right. Leslie will, uh, will forgive me for doing that. Um, one of the other things that I've got coming up, uh, Barbara, and I'll, just, I'll mention it here. Uh, you and I were talking about a little off uh, air. Uh, quite a few of my listeners, uh, of course, know that uh, I speak a lot about biomimicry, and uh, which is actually taking the designs uh, of nature and using them in, in everyday products. But our our uh, our ancient ones and the indigenous people around the country have been doing that for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, I'm being interviewed this afternoon on a, uh, a French TV show about that very thing. But I know that uh, it's really about living in balance uh, with a natural world, and I know that's something that uh, near and dear to you. And, and the Cherokee have done that forever, right? Yes, and you know when you said the word biomimicry, I've I've never. I'm not really familiar with this term, but when you said what it was, I, I said, oh, yeah, this is what Cherokee people do all the time. This is really the basis of the culture and, and doing things by observing nature and working with nature instead of trying to conquer nature. Um, so, so, for example, when I think about the old villages from, you know, a thousand years ago up through contact up through the 1700s, those villages really used the natural system so perfectly. They did. Uh, always along the river. And, and the combination in Cherokee culture of what we would call today sustainability, public health, science, was also con- combined with spirituality. So yeah. having these villages situated on the west side of a river so that in the morning they could get up and face east across the river and do the going to water Ritual, which was praying and immersing in the water, washing away any bad things. Well, in doing this, they also recognized the river. They called it the long person, Gunahita Yanwi, with his head in the mountains and his feet in the ocean. So they had a concept of a watershed. I mean, they understood that as a whole ecosystem, we would say today. And because the long man was so powerful and could provide cleansing, could provide healing, they had this spiritual belief or taboo as some anthropologists have described it that you would never put any waste in the river so you wouldn't spit in the river you wouldn't pee in the river you wouldn't poop in the river you wouldn't put a dead body in the river none of that and so of course anthropologists describe this as superstition but you could also describe it as public health absolutely yeah that yeah they the (coughs) The Cherokee, you know, one of the things, Barbara, and you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to live with indigenous people uh, on six continents, and, and that is one thing that I can say is, is uniform throughout most of the cultures that I've had the great honor of, uh, of spending time with is, is, is sort of how they relate 
to nature and how they use nature in, in mimicking uh, everything from buildings to the medicines to the food to everything else the way the uh, sort of the animals survive there. You are listening to Nature's Edge and this is Dale and we are talking to Dr. Barbara Duncan from the Museum of the Cherokee Indian. We're going to take a little break and we shall return. Welcome back. This is Dale, and we're talking with Dr. Barbara Duncan today, and Barbara is the uh, education coordinator. Is that right, Barbara? I never know exactly what your title is. She's just my buddy at the museum. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I do that, but she is uh, certainly one of the most knowledgeable people that I know about Cherokee and Cherokee culture. Uh, just has an amazing amount of knowledge. Uh, if you if you ever need somebody to talk about that, she is the person to contact. Although she is uh, also one of the busiest people that I happen to know uh, uh, out there. Barbara, we were talking a little bit about living in the Cherokee science and living in nature and and living in balance with nature and and biomimicry, the stuff that I talk about and everything else. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a, a few things. Um, one is the Cherokee pottery. And then also after that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this rather unique fabric uh, uh, that you've shown me uh, over the time. But why don't we start with uh, with pottery? Well, I think that uh, in terms of living with nature and in balance and respecting nature, modeling your culture after nature. In addition to that, as human beings, you know, we've got this very active intellect. And what the Cherokees also did was lots and lots of what I call Cherokee science, lots of experimentation, trial and error, looking at these materials. So we know, of course, that the original way that they cooked and made food hot was to have, say, a stew or liquid and things in a basket, um, and they would drop, drop a hot rock into that. Yes. Now, have you ever done that? I have, actually. Yeah, that, that's one of the ways to boil water uh, and purify water. And it's astonishing, isn't it? Because it yeah. happens instantly. It's like faster than a microwave. Absolutely. It's, inc- it's incredible. And it, and it works great. It does. It works very fast. Yeah. Um, so after that, the Cherokees started carving these soapstone bowls about 5,000 years ago. So that was their improvement on that technology, these soapstone bowls, which they traded all over. They, these bowls ended up in Ohio and the Great Lakes. They come from right here in the southern mountains. But the next innovation was pottery. And this started about 3,000 years ago, right near here, right down here. The first Cherokee pottery right here in the mountains is from Swannanoa. Really? Right down the river, yeah. And these Swannanoa pots, we've got some on display in the museum. They're conical. The bottom of them is a cone. Yeah, they're pointed. They're pointed, Mm -hmm. right. And that's so that you can kind of scooch them down into the coals, not directly into the flames, but you pull out the coals, you scoot them down in there. That conical shape conducts heat incredibly quickly. The other thing about these Swannanoa pots is they are, when the clay is wet, it's impressed with fabric. Yes. So all of them, all of them have these fabric impressions on them. And you can kind of reverse engineer that with with some clay and you can see what they were. Um, But those fabric impressions do a couple things. They make the heat conduction much more efficient. And they also give you a rough surface so you can hold on to the pot better so you're not going to drop it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, let's talk years. 
is this 900 years ago, 1,000 years ago when they started this part, or do, you, do we know? We know. Uh, we know pretty, pretty clearly. The first, the first pots like this from Swananoa, the fabric-impressed pots, 2,900 years ago, just 20 miles down the road here. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. There are some earlier pots that have been excavated now up at Ravensford, which is right up the road from the town of Cherokee. Fiber-impressed pots, maybe 4,500 years old. So this is a really ancient tradition, and the Cherokees have continued this. This is one of the things we've helped revive at the museum. So Cherokee potters now have the longest ongoing tradition of pottery on their own land of any tribe in the country. Even the Hopi? The Hopi pottery started about 2,000 years ago. Oh, interesting. I I learned something. I, I always thought the Hopi uh, actually had some of the oldest uh, pottery. And it's beautiful. It I mean, is. It's incredible. I mean, every tribe who did pottery had to go through this process of, of scientific examination. And yet, I think the interesting thing too, Dale, and you probably know this, is that when we think of the scientific tradition, you know, it's based on experimentation, and you read all the work that went on before, and you replicate the experiments. But Cherokee people and other indigenous people, as I'm sure you know, they also have access to information from dreams and visions yes. and sources that are probably not so accepted by the scientific community as we know it today. Altered states of consciousness. But all of that is such a rich, uh, fertile ground for, Absolutely. you know, and you look at the innovations and the technological achievements of Native people, and you just see that this was tremendously successful. I think we all do that, whether it's in forms of dreams or, or wants or something. The, the difference is, I think, that most of the indigenous people, and when I talk about indigenous people, of course I'm talking about uh, North America's indigenous people, the American Indian, they listen to those dreams and those desires and and uh, uh, and use that knowledge, uh, which I think is sad today that most of us don't listen I, to them. I agree. Um, we've got about four minutes here, and I, I know Barbara brought something. Um, it's actually laying here on the desk. I wish you could see it. She can, she can describe it, but it is this uh, amazing fabric uh, that has uh, quite a history to it. And I know this is something, Barbara, that, that you're very interested in. Tell us about it. Well, this fabric right here, Cherokee fabric, goes back 9,500 years. Not really in the archaeological record. We know because of fabrics that were impressed on clay that survived. So that's how we know about it. Um, I mentioned the Swananoa pots, and you can see this fabric. So this fabric that I'm looking at right here, this is a reproduction of a Cherokee skirt found in a cave over in East Tennessee, Morgan County, uh, wrapped up in a river cane mat. The skirt is about 46 inches around the hips and about 26 inches long, so it's a knee-length skirt. And this fabric is made of, was originally made from nettles. But the fabric was not, it would not sting you. So yeah. the nettles were treated and worked and the fibers taken out and then spun. And then spun into one long continuous thread. So this skirt, which has about seven rows to the inch of twining, um, would have taken about 150 hours to make. And it's one long thread. So these textiles, typically, there are no knots in them. It's I know. one long thread. That's amazing. It w is. Within itself. I mean, I... I 
I've never seen textile done like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's so interesting. And we're working with, um, we've been doing some workshops where Cherokee women now are learning to make this kind of fabric again. Some people in the community are working with the plants. There are about 30 different kinds of plants and animal hair that uh, Cherokee people use to make thread and fabrics. They made these skirts. They made blankets. They made uh, soles for sandals. They made little bags. Um, and, of course, you, I'm sure you know very well, how important it is to have a string, a rope, a you know all of those kinds of things, bowstrings, all of that. So oh, important. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the science involved in this is it's amazing. One of the common fibers that was used was from the dogbane plant and the apokinum family. It's a weed to us. Yeah, it's yeah. like grows along the roadsides. This dogbane, the tensile strength of this plant, is tremendous. It is. Um, and so they knew that, and they knew these ways of like uh, treating the fibers. Plants had to be gathered, broken down, treated, stripped out, twined together. Um, uh, again, just an incredible technology, but mostly unknown. How, how old did you say that uh, discovery was from uh, East Tennessee, the fabric? Uh, well, this has never been dated from East Tennessee, but we know from some other impressions on clay hearse over in East Tennessee that people were making this very fine thread, one thirty-second of an inch in diameter, and making fishnets and bags 9,500 years ago. That's that's just amazing. Did, did they dye it, Barbara? Did they use Oh, they uh, did, yeah. So some of the thorough? oldest artifacts that we know, about 4,000 years old, they have probably dyed with walnut yeah. because there are strips that are missing. And if you dye something with walnut, that acidity makes things disintegrate really quicker than the other fibers. Yeah. So, yeah, they made stripes and patterns in them. That is that is neat stuff. And, and uh, you, you talked about that uh, you have ladies from the Cherokee that, that, are, that are learning to do this. Um, is there a lot of interest in, in... I know there's a lot of interest in keeping their culture alive, but are you having a lot of interest learning to remake the pots and make this this fabric? Oh, yeah. Well, this interest comes from the Cherokee people. So as a scholar, these are not my ideas. These all these projects all come from questions that Cherokee people have brought to me or to the museum. You know, do you know about our fabrics? Did we have fabric? Uh, what about these old pots? Can we learn to make those again? So these these ideas and questions all come from the community. Yeah, that and and I knew the answer, but I wanted you to, to say that. Yeah, that, it's amazing how, how the... Uh, the Cherokee people are, are wanting to, to not only keep their culture alive, but, but this uh, ability to manufacture uh, things. This is Dale. You are listening to Nature's Edge. We shall return. I do like that song, Leslie. You did good. <laughs> we are, we're having a great discussion today with uh, Barbara Duncan. And uh, Dr. Barbara Duncan. Oh well. Yeah, and uh, the uh, we were, we've just been talking about everything Cherokee and particularly the history stuff. And I know there's a there's a project that's near and dear to you, uh, Barbara, and also to me, as you know, and that's the uh, the Cherokee Heritage Trails uh, program. And uh, I know that's uh, uh, some things that are happening uh, with that program and. Let's talk about that a little bit, and uh, including uh, we might might start with uh, since we're recording in Asheville, North Carolina. There's some interesting tiebacks here, back uh, along the uh, French Broad River. Well, that's right. I've just uh, just pinpointed the location of one of the earliest Cherokee towns here 
in Asheville, and it's um, it's at the junction of the Swannanoa and French Broad Rivers. Know it well. And the uh, part of the part of the original town is on the back corner of the Biltmore property. The other location of the original town would have been over across, like I say, on the east side of the river, uh, in what's now the French Broad River Park. The original name of this town was Anatokiastiyi, where they race. And so people may know in recent memory there was also like a, a ca- an car racetrack down there in that same area, but yeah. but a place for for races, either foot races or canoe races for the Cherokee for a long time. Yeah, I, yeah, I knew about the canoe races, and I, and I actually knew about that site, but I did not realize it was one of the original, if not the original. What uh, gave the Cherokee people still call Asheville Tokiasti, the place where they race? Yes, yeah. Um, Tell us about the the, Her- the Heritage Trails project. This is just a tremendous project. I love this project because it recognizes Cherokee places in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. And it recognizes, uh, this is a project we did with the North Carolina Arts Council, Blue Ridge Parkway, National Park Service, Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. A lot of terrific partners starting back around the year 2000. And um, there were other trails projects. So people may have heard of the traditional music trails. Yes. The uh, Arts and Crafts Trails, which was the beginning of Handmade in America. Mm-hmm. Gardens and Countryside Trails, also part of Handmade. Was Becky Anderson started that here in this region. And the Cherokee Heritage Trails. So we identified, my co-author Brett Riggs and I, identified these places in these three states, which, you know, the Cherokee Territory is originally eight present-day states. Yes. So this is kind of the heartland. Um, places that were significant because they were part of history or they were part of myths and legends or they were actually interpretive sites, little museums and places that people could go. So the Cherokee Trails Guidebook came out in 03, and we started then training Cherokee people as trail guides to take groups around to these places. And we're just doing another round of that this summer. So we have these terrific trail guides who are Cherokee people who can go with your group out to these places. This is not like if you go on a tour, say, in New York or Charleston, and it's like a one-hour tour, and they've got a spiel, and they've, like, you know, practiced this and rehearsed it. These trail guides, they have to know about the whole history and culture of this whole extremely large geographical area. They can tell stories. They can talk about their personal history as a Cherokee person. And it's just, it's a great program. And people can hire them for their uh, outings? Yes, people can hire them through the museum uh, for a day. You know, there's a day rate, a half a day, cover their expenses, and they will they will take you out on these trails. And I think it's really important to have, now you can, I mean, we would be delighted for people to buy the book and go explore, but to have a Cherokee person with you talking about these places is it's very special. Oh, it really is. I mean, I, I can, I've walked a lot of the remote trails, of course, in, uh, in the Kuala Boundary and, and uh, um, also paddled quite a few of them. But mm-hmm. the, uh, there's nothing like, I mean, one of the greatest experiences I had uh, uh, in doing a trail was with the gentleman we were talking about earlier. I actually got to go out on one of the trails with Jerry Wolf. That was so amazing. Yes. Jerry went with us on our first training of the trail guides, and it was so terrific because it was the connection of that older generation of Cherokee traditions with the younger generation. And we were going around places, and Jerry, you know, at one point Jerry just said, well, you know, my grandfather said that when Cherokee people used to meet, they would say, where is your fire? And that meant, where is your town? Where's your town? Or where do you live? But just to know that they really so identified with that sacred fire that was their identity. Is where was their fire? Yeah, that that's uh, that's amazing stuff. And Jerry told me the same thing. I mean, it, it, there is, 
I can tell you people of all of the great things that I've had happen to me in my life, it, it, there is nothing like sitting on a log in the middle of the Kuala Boundary uh, with Jerry Wolf and listening to him tell you stories. Amazing. That, that's right. Absolutely amazing. So the, the Heritage Trail, people can do that. Now, it, it identifies... Um, different locations specific uh, sites does it uh, are the trails uh, you walk them you drive them bicycle and any and all of the above Um, such a large area we really had to organize it by hubs and these correspond to the chapters in the guidebook so so you can go to Cherokee and kind of base yourself in the town of Cherokee and explore around the area for really a couple days you can go out to Juddicola Rock in uh, Jackson County and all around, if you move on over to, uh, to say, Macon County, you can look at some amazing places up at Standing Indian and Woyabald. You go on over to uh, Cherokee County where Murphy is. There's a little museum there. It's got great interpretation of the it Trail does. of Tears and the history. You can also, the, the guidebook directs you down to the Leech Place, which is on the Hiawassee River, the story of the giant leech, the monster that yes. lived in the river. You can actually walk there, and you can look out there, and you can see the big bluff, and you can read the story in the Trails Guidebook as told by Jerry Wolf and, and, and be at that place. So there's a lot of different kinds of places. There are these wonderful little museums and interpretive centers. I mean, my gosh, New Echota Heritage Site down in Georgia. It's an incredible experience. So it some is. of them are like well-developed like that, very used to having visitors. Some of these places are... You know, I'm on the board of directors of New Echota. I know, and that was yeah. a great move that they made, Dale. I think that's really terrific. Um, there are other places that I call the cornfield sites. And uh, these are some of my favorites, where you just go and look at, and sometimes there's not even any interpretation, but like at Peachtree Mound near Murphy. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can just know that this was a town going back 10,000 years where DeSoto's trade goods ended up, and perhaps DeSoto went through there. You can look at the, you know, we were talking about the sighting of the towns, that it's always on the east side of the river, kind of these low hills around it, leading up to the bigger mountains. There's this whole kind of architecture of the sites, but also the feeling of those places. I know, but for our listeners, why the east side? Because of this ritual of going to water. There you go. So first thing in the morning, traditionally what people did, or at times of sickness and for other reasons, before the ball game, after the ball game, go down to the river, face east, across the water, to enter the water in this purification ceremony. And this the, the book you're talking about, uh, the Cherokee Heritage Trails Guidebook, it, you're the co-author. Yes. Uh, uh, with uh, with Brett Riggs, and um, that's available at the museum bookstore, correct? It is, and also in our online store, okay. so people can go to so, our website and order it there. So, so it it is available out, there, and it is a, it is a great book. Uh, uh, do you do um, any of the trails? Um, Around Robinfield, do you get up into the Snowbird uh, area at all, Barbara? Yes, that's a whole hub. And so there's, uh, of course, the Junaluska Museum there is a great place yes. to start. And they have medicine trails all they around do. the museum you can walk. You can also walk part of the original Trail of Tears there if you go down Long Branch Road. You can. Tatham Gap Trail. It's a, it's a gravel road now. And it you can see the landscape much as the people saw it as they left the Snowbird community in 1838 and you can go up and look back down the valley and it's just it's beautiful and heart-wrenching yeah it, it and it really is one of the few places left on the trail where you pretty much are seeing the same uh, um, geography um, as the as the Cherokee people who were removed that that were in the snowbird community but I have to say that their story is that the important ending to the story for them is that they are still here they're yes. still Cherokee 
they're living and thriving and you can go visit them come see us at the museum um, you can spend a great day going to the Museum of the Cherokee Indian. We're open year-round. Okonofti Indian Village, where 1750s village, you can meet people. Outdoor drama, Unto These Hills, Unto these just hills. opened uh, June 1st, uh, running through mid-August. So come to Cherokee and learn more. There is a lot to learn uh, in Cherokee, and, and uh, there's a lot of great knowledge there for, for your entire family uh, uh, to, to just to experience... Uh, Another culture, and as Barbara said, it's it's something that is not very far from you. Barbara, thank you so much for being on Nature's Edge. Thank you, Dale. So good to be here. It was enjoyable, and we learned something, and this is Dale. And guys, get out in nature. It's magical out there. And until I see you next time, stay wild. Stay wild.